Well, we have uh, only one sermon left in the Revelation series, and we're not doing it today. <laughs> I wanted to save it for next Sunday, uh, for Ascension Sunday is what uh, the last Sunday of Easter is, because the text is just perfect for Ascension. And believe it or not, I, I only have three sermons left, counting today, uh, as your pastor, which is kind of mind-boggling. I cannot believe it has moved so fast. Um, when we announced three months ago uh, that we were leaving, it felt like we had a lot of time. But it's really just uh, flown by, and I have um, all sorts of emotions as we near the end of our time together. So for what I wanted to do, for one of these last three sermons, I wanted to return to the very first text I ever preached. At the very first public worship service of our church. So on October 1st, 2017, St. Andrew's Episcopal Church, where we were first meeting, uh, I preached on this text that we are about to read. A sermon entitled, An Invitation to the Doubting. And I did that because the story of, of doubting Thomas is really important to me. And it's really important to the vision that I, I hoped for this church. And that is to be a place, a hospitable place for skeptics. Because this city is full of skeptics of the Christian faith. Maybe you're one of them. I'm one of them in a lot of ways. I'm skeptical by default for so many hard-earned reasons. And I wanted our friends and our neighbors and even our own church members to know from the very beginning, from the outset, how Jesus deals with skeptics and cynics and doubters. You see, this is the climax of John's gospel we're about to read. And it's this amazing interaction between the risen Jesus and Thomas. And it is the exact opposite of almost everything you ever heard about doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. And Jesus is so, so gracious to doubters. So, on one of my last Sundays, I wanted to return to this text because it is my fervent hope that this church will continue to be a place where skeptics can be shown that same grace. Where they can, as we always say, belong before they believe. Where they can find a hospitable place to explore the story of Jesus and maybe, just maybe, be transformed by the risen Christ like Thomas me, like you, like so many other doubters. So, that said, would you stand to honor the reading of God's Word? This is John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. When although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of the Lord. 
uh, children's books and Sunday school lessons that it was clear to him there were three people in the Bible you did not want to be. The first was Goliath. <laughs> I mean, it'd be cool to be that tall, but it's a bit of a jerk. The second was Judas, for obvious reasons. And the third was Thomas. Because it seemed to him that his first name was Doubting. And grown-ups talked about Thomas with disapproving, wagging heads. And in the pictures, in the books, everyone looked mad at Thomas. And Thomas looked ashamed. He said, for him, the message is clear. Don't be like doubting Thomas. Because our doubts are met with Jesus' indignation. And then, at least here in the modern West, we have created an entire Christian religious culture where it is shameful to doubt. Certainty is a virtue, and doubt is a sin, we say. I've heard preachers say things like, if you, if you can't remember the exact day or the hour that you believed, then maybe it didn't really happen. Or maybe this one, if you're only 99% certain, then you are 100% lost. Ever heard things like that? The effect is that it sends doubters into hiding. Because it's not safe to talk about your doubts or your questions. And we tell ourselves, don't question, just believe. Stuff those doubts back down where they came from. Just stick to the platitudes, the surface answers. And some tragically have even concluded they must not be a Christian at all because they have all these lingering doubts. Brothers and sisters, what if I told you that we have gotten the Thomas story completely wrong? What if I told you that Jesus is not criticizing Thomas in this story at all? He's consoling him. What if I told you that Thomas's doubts do not elicit indignation from Jesus, but an invitation to him and to every one of us? Because in the brilliant way that John arranges his gospel, Thomas at this moment represents us. He represents everyone who will ever read this gospel in the future. Because Thomas is the only one in the story who was asked to believe in a risen Messiah without the benefit of seeing. All the other disciples got to see. Thomas alone is asked to believe without seeing. He's asked to believe based upon what? The testimony of the other disciples. Not by sight, but by the word of others. And you know who else is asked to believe without seeing? You and me. Who else is asked to believe based on the testimony of those who did see it? You and me and everyone who has ever read this gospel. See, Thomas actually represents us. But even Thomas gets to see after eight days. After eight agonizing days of being asked to believe in the risen Messiah without seeing it with his own eyes. But friends, this is what we are asked to do. Not for eight days, but for all of our days. Yes, we have the sure promise that we will get to see Jesus at the end of our lives or at the end of the world, whichever comes first. But for the entirety of our lives on earth, we are asked to believe it all without seeing. John gets that. And that's why here in this moment, he gives us Thomas. Because he shows us how Jesus responds to doubters. To show us how to believe without seeing. How do we see the grace of Jesus for doubting Thomases? I think you see it in three ways. First of all, notice, Jesus recreates the exact scene that Thomas missed. 
He recreates the exact scene that Thomas missed. If, you were, if we were reading through the whole Gospel of John and read through this whole chapter, it is obvious that verses 26 and 27 are almost an exact replica of verses 19 and 20. See, again, the disciples are gathered together behind the locked door. Again, Jesus suddenly appears among them. Again, he greets them with the words, peace be with you. See, it's the exact same scene, just a few verses apart. And the only difference is that it's eight days later, and this time, Thomas is there. Jesus is recreating the first Easter for the benefit of Thomas alone. Friends, there are precious few resurrection appearances of Jesus in our Bibles. They are rare, and therefore they are priceless. So to spend one of them just recreating a scene for a struggling disciple who missed out, that tells you something about Jesus, doesn't it? Does this sound like the actions of a man who is mad or annoyed or disappointed in Thomas? Or are these, the actions, that are, are these actions that are intended to shame him or to shower him with grace upon grace? Jesus goes to great lengths to pursue Thomas in his doubts, even to recreating the Easter appearance just for the sake of Thomas alone. I've told this story before, but just in case you missed it, it's a great story. In the summer of 2013, uh, April and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. We are old, yes. And I had been planning this anniversary for approximately nine and a half years. So you see what happened is the video for our original wedding had been um, disappointing, to say the least. That's because I entrusted the filming uh, of our wedding to my stoner cousin, <laughs> who uh, assured us that he had gotten like super awesome at wedding uh, or video editing. And <laughs> what arrived in the mail a few weeks later after our wedding was most definitely not awesome, uh, not only in quality, but mostly in the fact that he had forgotten to record most of the ceremony. We got April coming down the aisle and then cut to the reception. <laughs> oh, it's funny now, but it wasn't then. Uh, and and April, was, April was pretty devastated. She was really hoping for this keepsake, right, to remember our special day. And so I said it, I thought it away in my mind that on our 10-year anniversary, I was going to recreate the wedding ceremony. We were going to have it professionally videoed. And that's what we did. Of course, some things were different, right? We were 10 years older. I was more than 10 pounds heavier. Uh, we had three kids uh, who participated in the ceremony. I don't know if Jackson and even remember this. Nora was just born, so she doesn't remember it. We have friends there that wouldn't even know 10 years ago, but everything else was, uh, we tried to have the exact same. Wedding party, <coughs> songs, the readings, the vows. I don't tell a whole lot of stories in which I'm the hero, but that's pretty great, right? That's, that's pretty great. <laughs> Now, why would I go to such lengths to recreate this whole scene? Because I love my wife, right? No other reason is necessary. In the same way, why does Jesus go to all these great lengths just to recreate this whole scene just for Thomas? Simply because he loves him. And it tells us that Thomas's doubts are no obstacle to Jesus' love. The early church father, Chrysostom, said of this passage, Behold the mercy shown by our Lord, how even for the sake of one soul he showed himself with his wounds, and came so that he might save even the one soul. 
This is the principle of the 99 and the 1 at work. You see, Jesus is the shepherd that would leave 99 to go after the one lost sheep, and he is the shepherd that will recreate a resurrection appearance for the one disciple who missed it. And this is love. This is grace, so that you can be assured that Jesus will be just as loving and as gracious with you in your doubts. Secondly, how do you notice? Notice that Jesus recites the exact saying of Thomas's doubts. He recites the exact saying. Notice, when Jesus shows up, he immediately turns to Thomas and he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. These are, of course, the exact words Thomas used to express his doubts. Remember? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. If I was Thomas, I'd be looking around at the other disciples being like, all right, which one of you told him? Which one of you is a snitch? But of course, none of the other disciples has seen Jesus since last week. So how does Jesus know Thomas's doubts word for word? Because he's God. He knows everything about Thomas. He created Thomas. He knit him together in his mother's womb. He knows all of his days before even one of them came to be. He knows all of his doubts, and his fears, and his questions. And he recites them back to Thomas, not as, if, not as if to say, I heard what you said, but more like, I heard, I heard what you said. I hear you. I see you, and I, I meet you right where you are. Because Jesus knows that our doubts come from a deep place. Have you ever thought that Thomas's reticence to believe is not just because he wanted empirical proof, but maybe he was just protecting himself from disappointment? <coughs> right, if what the other disciples are telling him is true, this, this changes everything. This is huge. And his hopes had just been dashed when Jesus died. So why get your hope up again if there's even a chance you'll be disappointed again? I actually respect Thomas's sobriety about this all. I know that's what's behind a lot of my skepticism. The fear that something that sounds too good to be true is. And so it's actually safer if I don't believe it. So I don't have to be let down again. And yet, notice, friends, Thomas shows up for church. <laughs> Doubts and all. This is literally the second Sunday of Easter. The second gathering of the church of the risen Jesus. And guess who's there? Ten believers one doubter. See, even from the beginning, the church was this mixture of believers and doubters. The author reminds us that Thomas's name means twin, which I think is his way of saying that every one of us is a twin, spiritually speaking. We're a mix of belief and unbelief. And the church was too, but friends, Thomas belongs. Verse 24 makes it clear. It says, Thomas, one of the twelve. The doubter belongs. The doubter belongs with the church. Now I gotta ask, have we lost this in our day? Is the church today a hospitable place for doubters? Do they belong here among us? See, I think Jesus recites the exact words of Thomas to him and to the others in the room in order to say, You are safe here. I already know your doubts. You don't have to be alone in them. 
This is a place where you can ask your questions. This is a place you can come not only after you have it all figured out. You come here just as you are, and I will meet you. Thirdly and lastly, you see the grace of Jesus for doubters. And that Jesus reassures Thomas by his wounds. He reassures Thomas by his wounds. Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus' hand and touched his hands and his side. And that's exactly what Jesus invites him to do. He says, put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. This is how Jesus assures Thomas it is really him. He said, these are the hands that were nailed to the cross. This is the side that was pierced by the spear. I am the one who died for your sins and rose again to give you life. Thomas, touch my scars. It really is me. I think this is incredibly significant. That Jesus' distinguishing feature that makes him recognizable is his wounds. You know, each one of us has features by which people identify you. When I go meet someone that I've never met before, I usually text them and say, look for the bald guy, because this is my defining feature. Can you imagine if I had hair? It would be so funny. What if I show up in Charlotte and I just got a full head of hair? My friends, the recognizable feature by which doubters like Thomas know it's Jesus is his wounds. My God with scars. Can you imagine? No other religion dares have a God this personal, this vulnerable. And every scar tells a story. And Jesus' scars tell you that he loved you enough not to remain outside the world of pain and suffering. He loved you enough to take the consequences of your sins upon himself at the cross. And these scars are like the receipts that your sins are paid in full. And his scars tell you that he overcame sin and death so that you can have life in him forever. His scars tell you that it is by his wounds that you are healed. Now, lo and behold, look what happens next. It is in this context of Jesus' gentle and gracious way with Thomas's doubts that Thomas actually makes the greatest profession of faith in the entire Gospel of John. He says, my Lord and my God. Do you know, Thomas is the first person in the whole Gospel of John to look at Jesus of Nazareth and say, you are our God. And not just the God, my God. Thomas is John's star witness at the climax of his gospel. Friends, he is not doubting Thomas. He is believing Thomas. We've got to fight to change his reputation. Thomas makes the greatest profession of faith in the entire gospel of John, and I think it is completely due to Jesus' grace with his doubts. And then in verse 29, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? The answer is yes, <laughs> just like the other apostles. But now Jesus turns and he says something for our benefit. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the last beatitude. Remember the beatitudes in the other gospels? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, etc., etc. Jesus gives us one more. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And then the author, John, turns to us. It's almost like an aside. He turns to us and he says, this is in fact why I wrote this gospel. 
Because none of you will get to see and believe like me and like Thomas. But in verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John is showing us how faith is going to work after Jesus' ascension back to heaven. He is showing us that doubt's going to be inevitable because we don't see. He is showing us that Jesus is gracious with doubters, and he is showing us that his eyewitness gospel is a firm foundation on which you can build your faith. He says, I saw it and wrote it down so that you can read and believe. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, there's another apostle named Paul who gives us a very similar image. He says, imagine that faith is like a house that you're building. And you want to build a sturdy and a good house that can withstand anything in this world. So the most important thing is the foundation. And Paul says, the foundation, the cornerstone of the foundation, that's the first and most important block of the foundation. That's Christ Jesus himself. He's the one who holds the whole structure together. But then he says that the rest of the foundation of the house of faith, you know what it is? The apostles. It's the apostles. Because the apostles are the eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, if your faith is built on the cornerstone of Jesus and on the foundation of the apostles, then your house will be strong. You'll be able to withstand anything. It's the place where God himself dwells, and he promises that whoever puts their faith in that will never, ever, ever be put to shame. See, faith needs a foundation. And John says, that's exactly what I'm doing with this whole gospel. You can't see and believe, but what we did, but we did, and we are giving you our eyewitness accounts so that you can believe. I think this is so interesting. Faith is based upon sight. It's just not your sight, but the sight of the apostles. He wrote it down for us in Holy Scripture by the Holy Spirit, and that's why the Bible is so important to Christians. So that you too could see and believe and worship the God with the scars of love. I don't know if you know this or if you read our website uh, recently, but the logo for Resurrection Presbyterian Church is an adaptation of the cross of St. Thomas. History tells us that believing Thomas, see what I did there? Believing Thomas went on to be a church planter in India where he labored until for the gospel until his own martyrdom. And later they started discovering these crosses in the regions where Thomas worked that looked like ours the budding ends of the cross and the Holy Spirit dove coming down. Now I chose that for our logo because my dream is that this church will be filled with Thomases. Doubters, skeptics, who are being honest about their questions. Who are exploring the story of Jesus together in community. Who are seeking and finding life through the gospel. And confessing with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Brothers and sisters, may this always be true of Res Press.